Welcome, friends and listeners. I'm Francine Parola, and our smart loving conversation today is about accompanying the abandoned spouse. There's lots to talk about on this. It's a really important topic, but first I want to introduce my guest. Matthew McDonald is a longtime friend and colleague. He is a counsellor and a psychotherapist based in Melbourne. He previously served as the Director for Marriage and Family Life in the Archdiocese of Melbourne for many years and oversaw the preparation of thousands of couples for Catholic marriage. He's married to Julie and is the father of six. He and his wife, Julie, also have been really active in marriage ministry as volunteers for decades, including as Smart Loving Mentors. And now Matthew's also working with us as a Smart Loving Coach. So Matthew, welcome. It's great to have you with us. Oh, thanks for inviting me, Francine. You and I have had many conversations around this topic as, as part of the coaching where we've been referring sort of couples to you or spouses to you. And you know, I'm seeing spouses as well. So we thought this would be a great topic to share with our listeners around some of the strategies and the things that we're learning and and using to help support spouses in this really difficult circumstance. But before we get into that, Matthew, um, I'd like to share with our listeners just a little bit about what's happening in our faith life so they get to know us. So how's your walk with the Lord been in the last few days? Have you got something you can share with us? You, you know, rather than, um, you know, I'm a part of a, a lay ecclesial community and we, you know, we do this sort of on a, on a weekly sort of a basis. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's sort of something pretty familiar to me. I'd say really pervasive for me over the past few months has been a gratitude to God for his providence to me. You know, I've I started practice as a therapist, private practice 12 months ago. Yeah. And just the way that's growing steadily, you know, I probably have a little bit more urgency, but God's just saying slowly, slowly, you know, and it's and it's growing at the rate that it should. But I, I did a, re- a big renovation at home to, you know, have a home office. It's a mm-hmm. dream I'd had for, for years. You know, when I did my study at the John Paul II Institute, I had a I did an essay at one point on the way the Industrial Revolution took fathers away from their families. Mm-hmm. And I, mm-hmm. I had this idea of the way technology gives us the possibility to return to something like a cottage industry where yep. children know what dads are doing because it's it's in the home, whether you're an artisan or a farmer or whatever it is. And, or a um, psychotherapist. That's, that, that's exactly right, you know. And so now I've got this opportunity and, and, and you know, we didn't have the money to do it. And, then, you know, the money just arrived, you know, for us yeah. to be able wow. to do this. You know, in a uh, in in a way that I couldn't have prepared. You know, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I just have this strong confidence that when God wants something to happen, He'll find a way, and it won't be the way I thought it was going to happen. It'll be better. I'm smiling because I often imagine God sitting up there looking at us, busily trying to structure and plan our lives. And he's like going, I got something better planned. I can't wait to surprise them with this. Yeah. <laughs> and then yeah. he just blows us away with something that was way beyond what we um, would have yes. thought of or aspired to for ourselves. So that's yes. And, and Matt, if you can just be a little bit more patient, I've actually got something better. Can you just hold your horses? And yeah. let it go rise, you know, <laughs> give it time to come. Yeah. yeah, that's great. Well, for me, the um, I've in the last couple of weeks, I've been on the RCIA team in our parish. So that's the, for the listeners, that's the team that helps prepare people who want to become Catholic. And there's been a whole lot of tension in the parish relationships and I somehow managed to get drawn into it, which has been a little bit confronting because it's really easy to look at somebody else's sort of actions or behaviour in the parish community and 
kind of see what's wrong with it and think, oh, well, they shouldn't be doing that or they should be behaving like this or we should be doing it this way. But I've kind of been trying to apply in situations where I'm confronted with that sort of thing to sort of look at it from the other perspective and see, well, how am I behaving? What am I doing that's not, how am I like that person? And it it came to me actually at a charismatic conference decades ago where John Sanford, who's a giant in the world of sort mm. of the evangelical, do you know him? Yeah, he's yeah, written lots yeah, of books yeah. and his wife. He happened to be speaking and he talked about do not judge lest you'll be judged. And he took that and the time and interpretation is just talking about it generically. It's like, don't be judgmental because, you know, God will be judgmental towards you. And he said, no, it's, it's very specific. The thing that we judge in the others is actually the thing we most despise in ourselves. Yes. And so it's like this projection that goes on. So if I'm criticizing or thinking critically or judgmentally about somebody else because they are too controlling, well, guess what? That's because I'm actually controlling and I hate it in myself. There's this internal kind of thing that's getting projected out. And so I've always kind of taken that as a, okay, if I'm thinking critically or judgmentally, flip it around, take it into prayer, let the Lord bring some healing into that space. And so that's where I am. That's been coming up smack Mm -hmm. in my face quite a lot in the last sort of week just to and as a therapist you know there's that dynamic that often we'll actually treat ourselves in the same way that we'll treat others you know there'll be that hypercritical part of ourself mm-hmm. um, you know yep. we'll, we'll judge our own actions maybe a little too harshly or you know or maybe mm-hmm. a little too lin- you know you know but the judge in us becomes unreasonable as well you know mm-hmm. so so we, we 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 can tend to turn in on ourselves the same sort of tendency. Mm. That And that, I think, is a great segue into our topic, which is filled with so much pain. Um, when we're talking about the abandoned spouse and how we as a church or as individuals can accompany them, it's a really awful circumstance. And I think maybe we just might start a little bit, Matthew, in how the culture is failing us generally right across the community. And to me, I look back to the patterns of no-fault divorce and the the family Mm -hmm. law reforms that rolled out through the Western world in Australia in the 70s, America um, around the same time as well, that was founded in the idea of how do we help poor spouses that are stuck in um, dangerous marriages, particularly domestic violence, so that make it easier for people that are in dangerous marriages to leave. It was a good kind of intention. But the unintended consequence of, of no-fault divorce was that we ended up with unilateral divorce. So one person can leave a marriage without penalty and for any kind of trivial reason, boredom, not wanting to take the responsibility of care, you know, wanting to find a younger spouse or you know, falling in love with somebody else. And the cultural sacred cow of personal fulfillment or happiness feeds into this. So even just not being happy in this marriage, this marriage is not fulfilling me, is now a legitimate reason for someone to leave. And so I don't know if you're seeing that in your your work, Matthew, or would you you know agree or nuance that a little bit? I, I tend to think the same, and I, and I think it's accelerating and in a sense mushrooming in a way that we might not have imagined. In that. You know, the, the overly individualistic approach of Western culture generally ha, you know, has that tendency to focus on my happiness rather than our happiness. Yeah. Uh, and, and that and that for the for the collective good or for the good of the family, um, mm. that I might I might make some sacrifices or put up with something that's less than ideal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and and as you say, you know, there are cases where for justice to really be done, a separation has to happen to protect yeah. the dignity 
of one human being or, or other human beings, the, the only way to deal with it is unfortunately as a last resort is the couple have to be separated. But but there are ramifications for that in the next generation in particular that are impossible to avoid. You know, and probably, Fran, mm-hmm. you know, that, that, those legal changes came through when you and I were probably in primary school. Yeah, and when yeah. we went to school, it was rare for somebody in the class to have parents who were divorced. You know, when I think back to my primary school years, whereas now, um, you know, it's a significant proportion of the, the children in my, you know, my children's classmates. Yeah. It's a fairly common experience. Mm. And mm. the and while you know, people will say, well, kids are pretty resilient. Well, they can appear to be resilient on the surface. But what I'm seeing is the ramifications for those young people in their 20s and their 30s when they're trying to begin relationships of their own, that's when the problems really come to the surface. They think they've been okay for the last 15 or Mm -hmm. 20 years and then suddenly their capacity to attach in a mature fashion with another person has been terribly compromised by something that wasn't their choice. Yeah. Um, And and so, you know, that's why I talk about it as a mushrooming kind of effect Mm. Um, be, because it, it's almost unavoidable. I, I had a friend of mine was a, when I was at university. His mum and dad separated after we, we, you know, he'd left home, you know, but but he, he and, and he was not religious in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. In fact, he was quite anti-religious. But he talked about the impact of on him as an adult, even you know, in his mid twenties mm. of his mum and dad separating. How destabilizing that was. Uh, you know, mm. I think it's just unavoidable for children and. I think I think there's an element in our culture which is starting to say we've got to think about the kids, mm. you know, and, and and maybe an awareness of the protection of minors um, might bring our attention back a little bit more from the individual to the wider familial and cultural ramifications of these kinds of choices. Yeah, yeah. well, we often you know just point out the spiritual significance and the way that you know the marriage relationship is meant to and is designed by God to be a window onto the nature of his love yes and when our human experience of marriage is so deprived if you like or or undermined by brokenness that assumption gets kind of projected onto God so can we trust can I trust human love well no I can't because mum and dad said that they loved each other on their wedding day but now they don't can I trust God's love? I don't know anymore because the, my human experience. And so I think the decline in faith practice is closely related to the decline in the marriage stability because it taps into that almost subconscious assumptions we make about love and the source of love gets transferred from our human experience to the divine. Yeah, yeah. You know, and for, for whatever reason, you know, maybe it's because God's created us as creatures who learn incrementally, unlike, you know, the angels who in an instant were given everything they were ever going to know. Mm. We develop by a gradual process of exposure and it's kind of like we, we can't walk into a room where there's all the light, it will blind us. God God knew I've created you as creatures who need to be gradually exposed to the magnificence of love and I'm going to start by giving it to you through your parents, then the wider family, and then the community, and then you can come in contact with the full source of it. But 
um, but, but it has to kind of be mediated or graduated. But of course, when the conduit, the, you know, and, and the cracked, broken sort of pipes that we are, uh, you know, in being that conduit, um, but a cracked pipe can still sort of give something to it. But when it, when it all falls apart, it, it, it becomes very difficult for the, you know, the conduit of, you know, the fullness of love to really get through to us. Mm. So in terms of then just thinking, bring it back onto our topic of the abandoned spouse and how do we accompany them? I mean, obviously the pain is immense, the betrayal, the trauma when you're in a marriage and you're thinking that everything's maybe okay or maybe things are not okay, but, you know, you're working on it and then your spouse, your husband or your wife um, wants to get out of there and does, you know, walks out. What kind of what are you seeing? What are the experiences you're hearing recounting recounted by you know clients or people that you're accompanying that have been in that situation? What sort of experience is it like for them? Mm. And, and for there are others around them. Like let's look at the you know, let's just paint the picture for what's going on. Yeah, yeah, it, it's so difficult. I think when somebody has the intention going into marriage of you know it. it Wanting to make a particular kind of commitment, uh, yeah. You and I had a conversation a little little while ago with some other therapists, and I um, I talked about my um, my grandmother. Um, yeah, it's it's a it's a slightly different situation, but my grandfather had been a professional fighter. He was um, brain damaged, and my grandmother. So this was back, you know, just just after the Second World War. My grandmother worked as a housekeeper for a priest who was a canon lawyer. And, the, and this canon lawyer had said to her, you know, you could have an annulment if you wanted to. He, he knew the circumstances. With, you, know, you, you could go down that path. But my grandmother had made the decision, and, and it was something heroic in my grandmother, I think. Um, she nursed my grandfather. Um, and you know, she, she could have chosen to do otherwise, but she said, but I've made this commitment. Mm. You know, and I mm. want to keep my commitment. He, I, okay, maybe he can't keep his end of the bargain, but I, but I'm going to try and keep mine. But when the other spouse doesn't keep theirs and walks away, and the other person desperately wants to, I haven't given up. Mm. Uh, you know, th- th- I think there's there's a pain there. At least my grandmother had this. Well, my grandfather was quite happy to be nursed and looked after, mm. <laughs> even though it was mm. a very one sided sort of a relationship. Um, he he didn't walk away. Um, yeah. It's when somebody you know the, the the pain of you know that that abandonment I think is uh, mm. is really difficult when that's when that's a one sided abandonment. Um, and even I guess when in the case sees, of your, I was going to say in the case of your grandfather, it was incapable. Like there was a physical um, impairment, a physical condition that made it incapable for him to be an equal partner in that relationship. I think there's a particular kind of pain for the abandoned spouse who believes, at least, or you know, it might be true, that their partner is leaving even though they are capable of and were in full awareness of the commitment that they were making. Yeah, yeah, there's yeah. A, and, 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 they, and the other person has just given up. Right, right. Yeah. And, and, and as you and I both know, we always know there's a part of the story that we never hear. So often one one half of the couple, one spouse is in in our office or on our screen if we're doing a telecounseling or telecoaching, um, we're hearing their side of the story with their particular lens. We know that we need to hold a space by listening to them and affirming them and and 
responding to their reality, we also have to hold a space in our minds and our hearts yeah. for the fact that this, uh, the other spouse is going to see it very differently. But I think there's what I'm seeing sometimes coming through from couples in this situation or spouses in this situation is is often that they're looking for somebody in the church to support them in retrieving their spouse. Mm. And sometimes, you know, the, the the work needs to happen actually initially focusing on on them and helping them to process the pain of what they're they're going through so that they can be a little freer in terms of how they um, how they think about what's going on. Um, as you know, when we're really wounded and emotional, we tend to be reactive and we hit back. And so I look for opportunities to help people that are in this deep pain to just think about how can I heal from some of this so that I can yeah, respond more yeah. appropriately. Yeah, yeah, and it, and it reminds me of the kind of work, you know, that, that you do with a with a couple when there's been infidelity in that, you know, occasionally infidelity will be something that happens, you know, in an unplanned way. But yeah. normally infidelity comes as a result of a long history of a particular dynamic in the relationship. And like you say, there's two sides to the story. And while in the first instance when you're you know, dealing with a couple where there's been infidelity, you really have to sit with the spouse who's been betrayed and not minimise the harm that that does to a relationship. But sooner or later, you have to come around to what was the dynamic in the relationship that led to that because, generally speaking, 90% of the time, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. Yeah. Um, you know, there's there'll be something in the dynamic. Uh, and, and it may be, you know, it may be 40, 60, it may be 70, 30. Who know, you know, who knows where that lies? Um, but yeah, and and you as you were talking, my previous um, previous career had been in human resource management, and I'd done industrial relations. You know, I remember the first time I had a, an internal staff complaint come across my desk. You know, and you read what this manager did, and you think to yourself, that manager he needs to go. You know, and, <laughs> and then you get on the phone to the manager, and you find out what's been going on in the workplace, and you go, okay, okay, this is a little bit different to what I thought it was. So that, you know, the, the, the same kind of thing. But nonetheless, the same as it, you know, when you're dealing with a couple where there's been infidelity, in the first instance, you really have to sit with the raw pain of the person who's been betrayed mm. because you can't get to that second discussion until that raw pain has been processed. Yeah, yeah. Look, we might take a quick break. There's so much more to talk about on this. So we'll be back shortly. Don't go away. It is easy to get discouraged when there is disconnection in our marriage. Arguments over petty incidents, too busy to romance each other, crowded with other responsibilities. All marriages go through periods where we need a breakthrough in our relationship. The Smart Loving Breakthrough course will teach you how arguments happen, how to manage them better or avoid them altogether. Understand your internal drivers and how your spouse is triggering you. Process the pain of past injuries, making you stronger and less reactive. Visit smartloving.org forward slash breakthrough. The Smart Loving Breakthrough course can be done by a couple or by an individual who is in a marriage that is in distress. Visit smartloving.org forward slash breakthrough to enroll today. Gift certificates are also available should you want to purchase the course for a friend or family member. 
Welcome back. You're listening to Smart Loving Conversations and we've been talking about accompanying the abandoned spouse. We now want to turn um, our attention a little bit more to the Catholic context as a very sort of specific subset in the culture. You know, in biblical teaching, there's really a strong preferential option for an intact marriage or the family unity is really a, a value that is consistently reaffirmed there. And it's part of our church, our Catholic tradition as well. And yet the cultural norm is you know, quite different. Cultural norm says that divorce is acceptable or sometimes even expected. So, Matthew, could you clarify for our listeners just what is the church teaching around these issues and and is separation permitted or when is separation a good idea and so on? Could you just unpack that a little bit for some clarity? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, you know, there does need to be a real distinction made between both separation and then divorce and then annulment. They're all different questions. Mm -hmm. Um, And then... And then remarriage is is a fourth question. So that you know they're all different things, um, and in and in every one of those situations, we need to look at the circumstances to work out well how do we handle this particular person or this particular couple in this particular situation. So it's not a you know a one size fits all. You know, and the the example that you alluded to earlier about domestic violence is one situation where for the protection of the dignity of one spouse. And possibly children, the only way to do that is to se- is for physical separation. So our value for the dignity of the individual means that we shouldn't expose that person to violence, and that sometimes it requires the enormous courage of the person who's the victim of the violence to make that you know to take that step because not only is their dignity being destroyed but the person who's actually perpetrating it they're destroying their own dignity and mm-hmm. they're not in control and if they're not in control the person who is in you know the, the person who may have a little bit more control who says well I'm going to step away it's not just for my dignity but it's for the dignity of the perpetrator as well as for children who are involved so that actually might be the path of love Yep. in that really difficult situation um, yeah, because that's what's best for the person. It's not good for the person who's the perpetrator can, to continue. It's not good to be the victim in that situation. Love demands something different. Mm. Um, and sometimes as painful as it, in the bad situation, that's the most loving thing to do. Mm. Um, and I'm really conscious just listening to your talk there that in our, our local communities is that sometimes we're not privy to all of the backstory that's going on in a marriage and that it was a community we need to be very careful about making judgments when somebody separates that there could be a very serious and legitimate reason for that and not just to assume that there's something giving up or there's some kind of fault on the part of yes so there's a you know, communities that we we want to be close, we want to have loving relationships and to know each other and support each other. But the downside of that can sometimes be um, that gossip and scandal can kind of become part of the factor that complicates the decision making for people in that situation. Yes, yes, and 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 I, and I suppose separation has the distinction that you know. Well, it's the same when my wife and I argue. You know, some mm-hmm. sometimes you need a bit of breathing space. Um, so, sometimes you just need to break, you, know, you need to break the circuit. Uh, you need to break the spot, you know, or, or step in so that the spiral doesn't, you know, go further down. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it can be enough that it'll it'll change the dynamic and somebody will say, okay, 
you know, not always, but sometimes it, it, it has to happen and it's the only way that you're going to get to a recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, when, um, you know, when she, you know, it's normally she packs up, takes the kids and goes to her mum's house and he's left home alone with his you know, bottle of whiskey uh, and he might go, well, gee, this really is worse than I thought it was. You know, yeah. and, and that's when he might wake up, you know, that's, that might be what it takes. Mm. Um, mm. And, and mm. so sometimes it can be the catalyst for real change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, I mean, it's a different, perhaps another topic for another day, but um, supporting a couple in a managed or controlled separation can be a very effective therapeutic process, which can alarm some people because, in a, in the again, as in the Catholic cultural understanding, we tend to think that any kind of separation is going to be a negative, that we need to resist that at all costs. So yeah. even not, not necessarily in the context of a domestic violence, for example, but just, a, you know, a, a couple that's just really got stuck, sometimes a uh, managed and supported by proper uh, you know, professionals can be a really effective therapeutic strategy. Um, I think what I'd like to do now is just talk a little bit about, I'm really conscious that Pope Francis has been so vocal in calling, in calling us globally to accompany each other locally. Yeah. Um, he's And he's highlighted a couple of categories. He's talked about the engaged couple, um, wanting them to be accompanied on their path to marriage. He's talked about the newlywed. Um, in the years post-marriage, which is we know are really high-risk years in terms of marital breakdown, uh, and also particularly those who are struggling in their marriage or who are separated. He, there, there's a three particular categories that he's identified. I mean, it's not the only categories, but I want to look at the particular concerns or the issues as they relate to the abandoned spouse, and then very specifically, what when he talks about a company, what does that actually look like? I mean, accompaniment is not just sitting down with a cup of tea you know, once and letting them tell their story. I think accompaniment has something much more specific and significant to accomplish. Yeah. Um, I suppose when we talk about accompaniment, you know, it reminds me of the work of what a therapist does in part um, is to connect with somebody and really, really listen yeah, you know, one of the one of the great things I think that Carl Rogers, while he didn't take a um, you know a religious perspective to it, saying having a non-judgmental approach to the person and not trying to provide answers, you can't come in and you know you know that's that's not the role of the therapist. Um, you know, you know he, he says it, it's to really genuinely listen and help a person uncover the resolution that you know that that might be within. Um, you know, there are there there are some ways that we might, as Christian therapists, approach that slightly differently to Rogers. But um, but his 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 basic intuition, the mm. importance of really genuinely listening, and um, and empathising with a person, uh, is important because it's it's a part of um, if things do break down, it's an important part of a grieving process, um, just like the the loss of a child or you know something you know, something is lost here mm-hmm. and and if somebody doesn't grieve properly it gets locked in the body somewhere and it's and it's going to cause us distress in it'll it'll come out in other ways that, mm-hmm. that are generally hurtful for for the individual and those around them and so you know a, um, a grieving process is really important and that just has to happen 
Yeah. You know, there's, and there's not yeah. necessarily a there's no shortcut and there's not necessarily a time frame on that. You know, you, you, we would say from a therapeutic point of view, look, you know, if something persists for years, then, OK, there's something else going on there. But it's a little difficult to say it should be three weeks, it should be three months. You know, you, you know, how, how long should that be? Um it depends on how how much you love the person. You know, mm. the more you love them, the harder is going to it's harder it's going to be to let that go. Matthew, I'd be interested in your perspective on this observation that I make. Is that I think what we tend to reflexly do, and very commonly in the church, when we're faced with really difficult, complex situations of pain and of sin, we go. Let's abandon the idea of the sin. Let's redefine it as not sin. So if there's mm-hmm. this circumstance where somebody's in pain because of their particular choices that they're making for what we would the church would say is a sinful choice, we want to ease the pain by saying, well, we should just change the teaching. So, And particularly on the areas of sexuality, this is a really kind of common one. So if they're feeling pained because of, um, choices around contraception or around sex outside of marriage or whatever, the assumption always is is that if we just said it wasn't sin for all the divorce and remarried and and you know the pain that sometimes comes there around feeling excluded from the church because of the um, communion if they haven't had an annulment and so on. Well, let's just change the rules. Let's just change what we think about sin. And I, my instinct is is that that is not truly loving the person. That's almost like anaesthetizing the person so that we don't have to face their pain or we don't have to be present to their pain. Can you yeah. respond to that or nuance it or put articulate it better? There's, there's, I suppose there's a couple of things that I that I think of there. <laughs> Strangely enough, it's somebody outside the church who I've heard say this, Jordan Peterson, that command, we shouldn't think of commandments as arbitrary um, injunctions. They're more like... Um, a law of nature. This is the way things are, and and you and and we're ignoring reality. And if we try and close our eyes to reality, well, we're fighting against gravity. We're fighting. Yeah, we're, we're fighting against something which is going to happen. You know that if that if if you do this, God's not telling us because He doesn't like us or He wants to inflict pain. It's because He doesn't want to inflict pain. If you do that, sadly. This is going to be the consequence, so so don't do it. And and if we try to paper over that, it doesn't change the reality of gravity. It doesn't change the reality that the sun's going to rise tomorrow morning. Uh, you know, you you just can't avoid those things, mm. and um, and avoiding the difficult things um, is where so much. You know, as a therapist, that's what causes people problems. If we turn away from the things that are really difficult, um, that doesn't make the difficult thing go away. And so we, you know, we need to look at the thing that's difficult. And um, again, I heard somebody who I, I'm not sure that they were particularly religious quoting G.K. Chesterton and saying, he's saying, um, Catholicism hasn't been tried and found wanting, it's been tried and found difficult. Yeah, yeah, it's a great point. <laughs> and, and you know, we 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 sort of um, 
we if we find a situation difficult and even in listening to somebody we find that we find i find as a therapist that person's pain difficult it, it hurts me too and if i as a therapist if i run away from the pain too quickly i'm not helping the person mm-hmm. um but, you know, because i have to sit with them in the pain not run away from it and try and find it an easier solution than the difficult you know the difficult thing that's ahead of us just reminds me of some of the difficult circumstances I've been in when I've tried to accompany somebody where in some ways they're projecting the cause of their pain onto the church, onto the teachings of the church. And so they're resentful of the church. If it would just be so much better, I wouldn't have to feel this pain if the church would just change its teachings. And so it's not just the church now becomes a source of wounding for them in their, in their mind. Yes. And so... I, I I can I can understand why it's so difficult and painful on one hand. On the other, it's a little frustrating because often there's a um, a lack of understanding of that dynamic that you're talking about. We're not talking about arbitrary laws, or arbitrary rules. We're talking about a, a law of nature, and so much of the church's sexuality teachings are based in natural law. It's a it's you know, like gravity and so on. I love, really like those that analogy. In this case of an abandoned spouse, just to bring it back to our topic, um, I think you and I have both worked with people where they've really wanted a representative of the church to pull the spouse who has left back into line. Mm. And they get really wounded when we kind of go, no, we have to respect the dignity and the freedom of that of your spouse. We don't agree with what he or she has done in leaving the marriage, mm. but it would be a greater wrong for us to compel, I mean, not that we actually could anyway, you know, they are a free agent in the law, but to, but there's can often be that becomes another source of wounding for the abandoned spouse that we don't respond in the way that they decide we should be responding. Can you speak to that at all? Yeah, there's, I suppose there's, there's two sides of it. Sometimes people will feel abandoned if the first response that the church has is, well, you could always try to get an annulment, <laughs> that there isn't some effort on the part of the church to try and help the couple. And um, recently I spoke with somebody who said, you know, there's there's all this insistence on preparation for marriage and things like that going into it. But then when things where's the help when, when things are falling apart? Uh, and I so I can understand why some people can in that moment of when they're really hurting to to think you haven't made the effort um yeah. to you know to, to help our marriage stay together i could i have some compassion for that view but then as you point to uh love necessarily involves so marital love necessarily involves the freedom of two individuals yeah. Uh, you know, love requires freedom. If, if if it hasn't been freely chosen, it's not a genuine act of love. And marital love is made up of two people's freedom. And two people's freedom needs to be exercised, not just on the day they say their vows, but every single day afterwards. And where one of them, sadly, exercises their freedom in a way that the other person finds terribly hurtful, the answer isn't to compel the other in the same way that God doesn't force us to do anything. You know, we ha- God will cooperate with us. God will allow us to make the choices that will lead to our eternal damnation. Yeah. And that's not a choice that God wants. You know, Jesus said, I, I came to serve the gospel this morning. Um, you know, Jesus, you know, saying to Nicodemus, he has come not to condemn the world, but to save the world. 
but our freedom's involved there too. Mm. Uh, and, and we can't, no, nobody can be compelled. Mm. And I'm just thinking when you talked about often the first thing that somebody goes to when a spouse comes to them distressed about their marriage falling apart is to go to the annulment. That's a classic of what we were talking about previously, where we try to avoid the pain. We think that don't feel sad about this marriage ending. You can start a new one, right? That's, yeah. that's the underlying message. And it's like, no, no, you're rushing to that, right? They, they haven't come to you asking, can I get an annulment? They've come to you asking for support and consolation and, if possible, practical help to retrieve their marriage or restore their marriage, and if that's not possible, to then grieve the loss of that marriage. Annulment shouldn't even be on the conversation. Precisely. way down the track. Yeah, yeah, spot on, spot on. And you can't shortcut the previous two things of trying to make a resolution and grieving before we come to the question of annulment. Yeah. Um, you, you know, one, one way or another, you know, those things, those things need to happen. Yeah, yeah. I'd be interested to hear if you found the same experience. I've found that when a spouse comes to me looking for support in this situation, they are so open to growth in faith. And they've I'm able to really encourage them and lead them into establishing a deeper prayer life. I mean, they're really obviously very distressed. Um, but I've found the people that I've worked with, they've generally been really open and responsive. Like they double down. They double, I mean, they might have a, a, a already an active prayer life, but they double down. They start saying the rosary twice a day or, you know, they go to holy hour, you know, whenever they can, or they, they really lean into the Lord. And they don't always retrieve their marriages. It's often not the thing that rebuilds mm. the marriage. But what they do get is they get a sense of God is with them in all of their struggle mm. and there's a consolation in that and as one husband said to me you know we haven't been able to save my marriage but you saved my faith and it wasn't me I mean it was the Lord acting in that and his response to that invitation from the Lord but I always think that's obviously got to be as Christian therapist counselors coach whatever role we're in that has to be part of our agenda is how can this situation lead this person into a deeper relationship with the Lord mm. Mm. Now, I remember you know, many years ago, my mum and dad, a friend of a friend who lived, we, we lived in, I grew up in Brisbane, we, um, a friend of a friend who was living in a country town, uh, mining town, um, and she knew my mum and dad and um, said, look, this is a friend of mine, her marriage is just broken down and um, she needs somewhere to stay while she's, um, you know, going to some counselling. Could she, could she stay with you? And... So this woman came and stayed with our family and um, she became a friend of the family. And years afterwards, she said to us that it was more therapeutic for her going to a family that was functioning, far from perfect. Mm -hmm. But she said that was better therapy than going to therapy for her. And because our family had a practice of prayer, and faith, you know, she re-engaged with her faith in that in that moment and it wasn't because um you know we weren't pushing anything down her throat we were just being our family our family being our family mm. and in her time of suffering um you know it's just a very sort of practical thing all my mum and dad was you know gave her a bed in the spare room yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. And, and she was a part of our family for two weeks um, mm, but beautiful but, but she, you know, she recovered her faith, and it was so. So it's a kind of an an, an example of that that accompaniment, but also how that um, that simple thing of you know offering somebody a room 
but she 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 didn't it didn't recover her marriage but she recovered her faith in the process as well and she got more in contact with that and ultimately i guess that is the life project is our journey to the lord yeah um, and some of us do that via marriage some of us do it by other ways but whatever whatever the outcome of that marriage or the state of that marriage uh, at any particular time the, the journey to the lord is a, is a given and so there's never a bad time not to lean more into our faith. But mm. it's especially, I think, consoling and helpful when we're under the stress of dealing with a really difficult circumstance of a marriage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, and when you just say the word, you know, what's given, I'm reminded of an essay that John Paul II wrote toward the end of his papacy. It's a, it's a meditation on givenness. And uh, having... Having gratitude for the things that are given to us, even the things that we don't like, you know, the the, the things that we wouldn't choose, but, but recognising that God doesn't give us anything that isn't good for us. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that can be really difficult to see in some moments, but nonetheless, not my will, but your will be done. Yeah. You know, even in this difficult circumstance, um, for, you know, for all those who love God, you know, something, something good could come of it. I, I don't know what it is, but mm. something good might come of that. Uh, you know, going back to my grandmother, my grandmother's father walked out on my great-grandmother with seven children in the middle of the Great Depression to go to America with his new girlfriend. My great-grandmother was insistent that her children not speak badly about their father. Oh. She never spoke badly about him. Uh, yeah, that, that's that's. In, she didn't choose that, but she she acted graciously in a situation that was really not easy, mm. and um, and the consequence of, of that um, on the impact it had on my grandmother and her faithfulness to her husband in difficult circumstances, you know, and and my mum and dad they had their own difficulties, but you know, we've had this witness of gracious faithfulness in really difficult circumstances that you don't know what the ripple effect of your acting with good grace in situations you didn't choose might have for generations to come. Yeah. Wow. We're going to take a quick break, listeners, and um, we'll be back with more of this great wisdom and insight from our guest, Matthew McDonald. Thanks, Matthew. We'll be back soon. Smart Loving Discern is a course for dating couples considering engagement. One of the most critical decisions you will make in your life is the decision to marry. Not only does it have lifelong implications, the decision to marry sets in motion a series of events that carry you towards that commitment with considerable force. Some of the really important questions that a discerning couple needs to ask include, am I ready to marry? Is my partner ready to marry? Is my partner the right person for me to marry? Is our relationship ready for the next stage of commitment? And most importantly, what is God asking of me and of us? If you need some help to think through the decision to get engaged and you want to take your relationship to the next level, Smart Loving Discern gives you a quality learning experience anytime, anywhere. Visit smartloving.org forward slash discern to enrol now. Hello, listeners. This is Smart Loving Conversations. I'm Francine Parole, and I'm joined today by Matthew McDonald. 
We've been talking about accompanying the abandoned spouse and we'd like to now just share with you a practical tool that you can use as somebody who might be in a situation of accompanying somebody in pain. It might be an abandoned spouse or something else. Uh, but this is a really practical tool that's used in the therapeutic space of reflective listening, um, but has also a lot of just really good applications, even in your marriage. So, Matthew, do you want to just explain for our listeners what reflective listening is and, and how they can deploy it into their own relationships? Mm, yeah. So really, it's a basic therapeutic technique, but it's been used by others. You know, I know having uh, been um, involved a little bit with um, marriage encounter, you know that it, that it's used there as a you know you know a fundamental skill in couple communication, uh, and so you know it's really just listening to what the other person has to say and trying to understand it from their perspective, and then be able to feed back to the person what you understood them to say uh, and. I guess in, in couple communication, it's not preparing your defence as you're doing that step. <laughs> you know, that that's the tricky one. Uh, but but to really listen and so, you know, so the other person knows that they've been understood. Mm-hmm. It, and and as a therapist, I this one thing that I've really learned that's valuable. It actually doesn't matter if, in one sense, I'm not accurate in what I reflect. Because if we're having an honest in, uh, encounter and, a, and an honest engagement, the client will tell me, no, that's not exactly correct, or it's, or it's almost correct, Matt, but it's not quite like that. It's like this. And the more, and, and that, enable, that helps the person to get clearer themselves mm. about what's going on. And so, what, what I'm doing as a therapist is holding the person in the space and helping them to get gradually more precise about the experience that they're having inside and the more precisely they express that uh, you know as as the word that's vague and um imprecise on the interior is made explicit there's something that gets released in the person when they make it explicit Mm -hmm. and and that somebody else hears that. And I think that there's something that happens in between two people in that process. It's like I, I see it as something like the you know the image of God imprinted as John Paul II said, not just on the individual, but on the couple, in the sense that there's there's the lover, the beloved, and the and the spirit of love that moves between the two mm. when when two people sit down and engage like that it's almost like the holy spirit is present whether we understand that or not um, something happens when there's that genuine engagement um, and it releases there's something healing in that yeah um, it, it helps to reintegrate something for the other person mm. And I've found in my experience is it's a it's a it's a discipline. It's hard as a listener to um, not sort of try to jump in or reinterpret or anticipate. So there's a certain discipline that's required from the listener, especially if it's relating to like I'm doing with Byron and my husband, and and it's a live issue for us. That the impulse to go to a defensiveness or have my say needs to be really held in check. But what it does is when we have that discipline to really listen and to seek to understand and and reflect that back or mirror that back 
it facilitates the other. They might start very superficially, but once that's ticked off, okay, you got that. Now I can trust you. I can go deeper. And then every time we affirm that I've understood what you're saying at that particular level, it allows a deeper and deeper probing. And that brings, in my understanding, what's sort of been bumbling around in the subconscious and creating chaos for their life. It allows that to be brought out into the light. And then it's disempowered. Like if it's a, if it's a if it's a, a an experience that is causing them pain and grief, it gets expressed in a way, as you say, that facilitates the healing. And to be able to do, in theory, we should be able to do that on our own, right? We could journal, and sometimes I find journaling quite effective. But there's a special character and power that comes when there's another human person mm. listening to us. I think it's it's got a you're right. It's that whole Holy Spirit between the two of us. It's a really sacred process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's there's two things um, that that I'll note in what you say. The first one is that you know what you said about um, you listen. It gets reflected. It's almost like um, gears in a you know in a cog. It goes click. And then click down to the next one, and click down to the next level, and click. Uh, you know, the, we we talk about it in therapeutic terms as there's a felt shift. Somebody, you know, you feel something move when you've articulated it. Um, mm. But then the the other side of that is we have all these things bubbling around in a um, a misty kind of a way, and we can't we we hold sort of like an emotional tension within us. And it's bringing the light of reason. Reason can't deal with it while it's unclear. Mm-hmm. But the moment we bring it out into the open in an explicit way, then reason can deal with it. But while reason doesn't know what it's dealing with, it, can, it, it doesn't know what to do with it, so it pushes it away. So, mm-hmm. so once that comes out, and then, and then it's not, not necessarily that we push it away, but that we might say, okay, so there's some, there's actually something useful and valuable in what I've just said, and it helps me to process that, put it in the right in the right context, or it, I'm, I'm I'm making it too big, or I didn't make that big enough. Um, I didn't realize how important that thing was to me. It, it could be any one of those things. Mm. Um, yeah. As a recipient of reflective listening, I've found that when I feel heard, I am have a sense of release that I don't have to defend that anymore. It's been yeah. heard. It's not like it's had its day in court. It, it's it's been witnessed. It's acknowledged. It's on the record. I don't now have to walk around defending it and try to be heard and stating that and pr- pressing for recognition on that. It's done. So now I'm free. I can walk away and focus on something else. Yes, yes, yes. And 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 look, and, and while I'm making a a, a broad generalisation, which I know isn't always the case. But the masculine tendency to jump in and want to fix something, as a therapist, you know, just, you know, you see somebody in suffering and you and you want to fix it. That isn't necessarily what might be fixing the situation. Is just let the person get it out. Mm. Um, you know, that's that's the only thing you need to do. And to try and do any more is that there's another saying that we have in therapy um, that slow is the new fast. <laughs> that, that, that you know that if you if you just uh, you know process things in the right order, we, you know what we were saying before about you know um, let the person be angry, then let the person grieve, and then we get on to the maybe with the possibility of a knob. You know th- things have got to happen in the let the things happen. If you want the person to process more quickly, 
let's go a little bit more slowly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, right. and, and you know, things will probably click into place sooner than if we try to rush through the process. So that's reflective listening. Um, listeners, we'll put some um, links and some notes in the show notes for this. So if you want more detail around that, you can just jump onto the Smart Loving Conversations page on our Smart Loving website and you can get details there. Matthew, if you don't mind, I might get your input on one of the questions from our listeners. So it's completely unrelated from uh, from Hazel. And she says, my boyfriend and I are having a really difficult conversations about navigating our interdenominational relationship. He has a very close family ties with a non-denominational evangelical Christian community church where he serves in the music ministry. Um, I have been receiving formation in my Catholic faith since 2012 He's open to doing marriage preparation course for dating couples. Can you help us? Matthew, what would your ideas and advice be for this couple? Um, you know, the first thing that springs to my mind is the great um, existential psychotherapist, Viktor Frankl, who, after the Second World War, his first wife died in Auschwitz. He remarried a Catholic. I didn't know that. Yes. Okay. And they went to mass and synagogue every week. You know, and 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 he lived. I think I think he lived into his nineties. Um, so you know, neither of them abandoned what was sacred to them. Yeah. And you know, the the, the you know the questions that the priest goes through with a couple when they come for marriage are around freedom. Is this person going to stop you from practicing your faith? And and you know that's having respect for the other person's freedom. And can we respect our differences? How will we respect our differences is mm-hmm. um, is is an important thing for for a couple I think in that situation because there there might be ways around it like going to two different services on a Sunday. Mm. Um, but but can we you know can I see why that person treats that with such value and am I prepared to can I live with that? Yeah, yeah. I think, I mean, my first reaction is, well, congratulations on actually having those hard conversations because you and I both know, Matthew, that a lot of couples sweep those sorts of challenging things under the carpet. They're just focusing on how do we get down the aisle? We don't want to rock the boat, (laughs) so we'll dodge the difficult topic. So my first thinking is, fantastic, you're having some of those difficult conversations now. That's going to stand you in really good stead um, if you go on to marry. Um, but you do need to, part of your discernment is going to be what's your level of tolerance for um, a difference in this particular space? Because um, there's going to be difference. We'll all have differences in our marriages and we need to, part of our discernment is, is this something that I can live with and tolerate and live with happily without kind of trying to prosecute and uh, ev- over and over again in the marriage? That's That's a recipe for... I think a very unhappy marriage. If we kind of think, well, I'll, I'll, I'll just put up with it, or maybe I can change him, or he can change, he, he can change, I can change her, is not a good is not a good foundation for a marriage. Yeah, yeah, I'd say that, and, and I, I'd say that last one that you mentioned, friends. You know, well, I'll go on in the assumption that that um, he'll change or she'll change. That's that's the recipe for disaster, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's an unfair expectation. Yeah, and disrespectful. Of the of the dignity of the other, and so I I liked I really liked your example of Viktor Frankl the the whole idea of well can I enter into a more fully understand the meaning and the value that this is and can I can I share that I'm not necessarily going to convert 
to that, but can I honour and respect and participate as a outsider, if you like, but as a as a an open outsider in in your experience and support you in your growth? Because that's the other thing is that is that we've got a responsibility to pursue a relationship with the Lord in whatever path we believe is the path that we're meant to take. So anything that's going to disrupt or distract us from that is it's never going to be good for us. So can can I can I support my Jewish husband or my non-denominational husband um, in pursuing the Lord and the best way that he believes is uh, and the way that he's called to do. Yes. Um, I don't want to undermine his faith. I want to in, in grow his faith. That That's my role as a wife. I need to grow my husband's faith, whatever that is. And does it have, have something a little bit to do with, you know, their his or her integrity and, and their capacity to act in good conscience? Yes. And can I support them? To, to grow and, you know, um, and to act in accordance with their conscience. And if we do that, if somebody says in good conscience, I cannot possibly be married to somebody from another Christian denomination, in good conscience, I couldn't do that. Um, or in good conscience, I couldn't go into a marriage where my children will not receive the sacraments of the Catholic Church. Um, you know, that's probably going to be the big question. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, how, you know how how can I manage how can I manage that come you know and and I think that's probably for a couple like that that's the big question. It is um, actually it's 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 how do we raise the children? Yeah. Um, because it's it can't really be both. I mean, it's it's got to be one or the other. I think it's mm-hmm. really difficult to uh, and it's it's and sometimes I've had couples married couples where they didn't think it was an issue when they were dating was like oh yeah look i haven't been inside a catholic church for years i don't care where the kids go to school where they get the sacraments but then when they've got that baby in their arms there's a reawakening of their faith and Mm. they're now wanting to re revisit that question or that resolution they made in their in their engagement period around how we're going to raise the children and what schools are they going to do to and which you know where, where are we going to go to church and so i think the more preparation you do and actively pursuing something before you've made an announcement and formally got engaged, I think once that announcement's made, it gets very hard to break it off. So I'd commend this couple to proactively do something before they've formally made yeah. that commitment of engagement. Um, in Smart Loving, we have a discern course, um, just to put a little bit of free advertising in there. It's, it's actually the first four lessons of the engaged course and can be upgraded but we add into it specific content around discernment and things to consider um, as a couple in that state of of still discerning considering is marriage the right thing for us so you know you can get more information about that from the smart loving website but there would be other do you know of other courses matthew that are out there that do that i mean any engaged course catholic, good catholic I, I would, marriage I would course say, would... i would say any engaged course i, I remember one, one conversation i had very early on working with for the archdiocese where um uh yeah, back in the day when everyone rang in and we manually registered everybody for the seminars and I had a girl i was typing out her name i said your name seems really familiar to me do i have I, you and i met somewhere and she said, oh, yeah, I came along to one of your seminars last year. And I thought, oh, this isn't good. Um, you know, you, you, you're back again. And she said, oh, no, no, we went through the process. And as we, when we finished the seminar, we realised we really couldn't get married. We were, you know, it, it was a real discernment process. And I had quite a number of couples who came along to the seminars, in my experience, who they weren't engaged and they were doing it precisely as a structural 
a structured way to make a discernment about whether or not we could get married. And I actually think that might be a better way to do it if you could. Oh, absolutely. Before you've got before you've actually got engaged, not sort of something that you're hurriedly you know doing as a, a tick box in the preparation before you walk down the aisle. Yeah, no, I agree. And and so earlier, or general rule, early as possible and preferably before the engagement, I'd absolutely um, affirm yeah. that. And and the other thing I would say is the later you are in life, particularly for a young woman, given that you have a window of fertility, don't muck around having those discussions. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Well, we're coming to the end of our time together, but before we sign off, we want to share a blessing with you. So I'll, I'll kick off first. My one this week is a YouTube channel. I think she has a website as well. It's called Homestead on Boone. And she's a young American mother of eight children, um, married 13 years. So she's had them pretty quickly. And she bakes sourdough bread and she makes cheese. She lives on a farm. Um, they grow a lot of their vegetables. And because I'm into the sourdough bread making, I've just loved just watching this young mum. Um, she's homeschooling all her kids. You don't see the kids much in the videos, but I've just loved just seeing how she lives out her motherhood and, and her her vocation uh, in this very natural, organic, um, organic way. I don't know if she's Catholic or not. That the channel's not kind of doesn't have any faith message, but it seems to me that it would be consistent with her um, having a Catholic a Catholic faith or a Christian commitment of some sort. So anyway, it's been really enriching. So I'll share that. Um, with the listeners. What about you, Matthew? During the past week, I went back and listened to um, a podcast. I've been listening to other Catholic uh, psychotherapists, um, two of them in the US. Um, there's Restore the Glory podcast, which is two guys who work. One, one's not in practice as a therapist now. He runs a healing ministry, but the other one is a, you know, a, a therapist. And uh, another guy, um, uh, Dr. Um, Peter, Peter Malinowski, who's a, a PhD clinical psychologist, and they were on the same program together. So it was a Restored the Glory. Glo <laughs> it's, it's kind of like when you're my, fa my favourite uh, podcast is John Anderson, and uh, but but the only thing better than John Anderson is when he has Jordan Peterson on the John Anderson podcast. <laughs> uh, you know, it's kind of like the best of both worlds, you know. Um, but, but the conversation that those three therapists had about understanding the self and integrating different, you know, they talk about parts of the self. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a, it was a really enlightening um, thing. So it was Restore the Glory podcast, um, episode number 79 from the 29th of March this year. Okay, great. Um, I'll put that in the show notes. Well, that, listeners, brings us to the end of our time together. If you've got questions for us, you can contact us on smartloving.org slash conversations. You can also get all the show notes there. I'm Francine Parola. I'm joined today by my good friend and colleague, Matthew McDonald. Thank you so much, Matthew. We pray that you will be blessed in your walk with the Lord today and we lift you up and all your intentions to our patron saints of Smart Loving Conversations, Our Lady Undoer of Knots. Pray for us. St. John Paul II, pray for right. us. Yes. This is Smart Loving Conversations. Goodbye.